Yes. Okie dokie. So, uh, so I was just going to have a little anecdotal thing that I was just thinking about because I has I was a little confused or my memory was a little soft on the uh, the Towering Inferno film that was out in '74. It's you know trashy uh, disaster film, but it's it's probably the the best of them. I don't I hate Airport. I always hate that stupid film. And I know that that was the thing that launched the disaster film. And um, anyway, the uh, the long and the short is that I was watching it and <clears throat> and I was kept going, oh, this is silly. This is stupid. It's all stupid. I don't believe any of this. I didn't believe the explosions. The, the fire looked fake. It looked like the, you know, the, it didn't look like real fire. But it was like, a, you know, gas jet fire that they use for movies, you know, where it, it just kind of flows out of the out of, out of the gas tank and it doesn't look like actual fire like material being actually burning but it struck me that you know what makes this film really work is the score the john williams score and it has a, a it, it sounds classy, it's well composed, it has nice harmonic uh, impact. In different, it has a, a couple of themes that work. It's it, you know George John Williams is an, an old-fashioned fellow who uh, knows from orchestral movie scores, which are not that prominent these days. And I was just thinking, if this didn't have the John Williams music, it would not really not be that great it would be a, a little bit of a problem and it really makes the whole thing tie together and i was just thinking well it's nice that, that there are people were making orchestral scores like that obviously you know a, a movie like goodfellas doesn't need or shouldn't have an orchestral score and there's all kinds of films that are fine without that kind of thing going on on the soundtrack but when when it the, the decision has been made to bring in uh you know the right kind of orchestral music with a, with a gifted uh, composer it can really really uh do something nice for a film it can really make it feel whole and all figured out and it gives you it gives a certain emotional continuity it's very very nice when that works so it's you know in other words what i'm basically saying is that the tower inferno is a, a popcorn movie and it's in many ways mediocre but John Williams gives it a veneer of class. And what, because what, of that, it's it's watchable. What year was that? 74. 74. So we had Towering Inferno. We had Jaws. We had Airport. We had all these disaster movies kind of coming out in the mid to late 70s, right? Actually, Airport was, I believe, 70. 70, 70. Uh, so Airport kind of started it. Yeah, that was pretty much the first, um, and the the movie that finished it off and killed it. Uh, the, there were two of them by Irwin Allen: The Swarm, which was out in '78, which I saw at the Quad Theater in Manhattan on 13th Street. One of the most hilarious screenings I've ever been to. I mean, commercial screenings because people started laughing and hooting and talking back. <laughs> talking back to it and having a great time just goofing on it it was just a uh, uh you know a live uh, kind of rocky horror picture show experience 
And then the one that really killed it off was called When Time Ran Out. And it was a uh, uh, volcano uh, disaster movie that also had Paul Newman, who was, of, of course, the star of Tower Inferno. But after that came out, that was the end of Irwin Allen and the whole disaster thing. So it was about mm -hmm. a 10-year run. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like musicals, like it had its heyday, but it never really went away totally. Like every so often, a disaster movie will still pop up. That we have like them what? all the time now. Well, I mean, what was that one with um, Green? Oh, you mean the the uh, the, the wave of the early um, uh, the the Deep Impact and the and the planetary yeah, impact. Yeah, and and Gre Greenland. You know, like you, you see these movies pop up Green? now. What's well, Greenland? Remember that movie? What was that called? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, like Jeff, you and I both with our memories. <laughs> I mean, I well, I don't remember a movie called Greenland. That's a it did really movie. well. Uh, no, it's just a different kind of disaster movie because it's all CGI and stuff. Let me just look it up really fast here. Greenland movie. There was an excellent... Uh, From 2020 with uh, uh, Gerard Butler. Um, it was it was a surprising hit. It made a lot of money at the time. Um, it didn't really hit make much of a ripple in, in film Twitter land because... You know, it was fairly standard white guy disaster movie. But, um, but what was the disaster, the looming disaster? What form of uh, threat? Was it was Greenland some, it was, a, it was apocalypse of some kind. I, it was either aliens invading. It was, I think it might have been aliens invading something. It was like end of the oh. world. So we see a lot of those, right? The, the disaster oh, yeah. movies of the 70s were more, not, were not really science fiction. They were more about the emerging technology. So airplanes skyscrapers mm -hmm. um and, and different from the 1950s where it was like you know uh the blob or um you know those... that wasn't a disaster it was just a monster movie monster movies and then disaster movies right disaster movies are different mm -hmm. disaster movies are like natural disaster like a fire mm -hmm. the poseidon adventure right <laughs> on this big cruise ship <laughs> i love that movie um and Jaws was sort of seen as one of those, but it definitely elevated the genre. It was it was the you know the high point of that genre because uh, I guess you wouldn't really call that a disaster movie, would you, Jaws? Because no, was... I would call it a monster movie. But monster again, movie. John Williams' music elevated it to a to a very considerable degree. Yeah, I mean, man. it really made that film work. That guy, oh. he's the best. Oh. He's the goat. Oh. Um. Yeah. So, but anyway, I always I always like to look at things in terms of like what was going on in the psyche of the American mind during certain phases, and and I'm really always been fascinated with the '70s because the '70s sit between the '60s and the '80s, and the '80s was Reagan land, right? Top Gun, militarism, and then the '60s was you know the '60s, um, and we're going to talk about carnal knowledge today, so that helps us yeah. because that's right in this era. That's right as you crest out of the '60s into the '70s. Um, but let me just tell you something: the box yeah. office for 1970. I just have to read it to you because it's so funny. You might uh -huh. think that Airport would have been the number one movie that year, uh -huh. but the number one movie was Love Story. <laughs> no, that's I remember that film well enough. Yeah, that's not surprising. I think it's surprising. A rom-com at the top of the ticket. All right, let me just read you the... the... Not a rom-com. Love Story is a tragedy. Okay, let me just read you the movies. If, if, if anybody wants to talk about the difference between then and now, even in the 70s, even in an era where, you know, arguably people would say, oh, movies were so much better before that. Let me read you the box office from 1970, all right? Love Story, mm -hmm. Airport, MASH, 
Patton, the Aristocats, which as a kid was my favorite movie, um, uh -huh. Woodstock, Little Big Man, Ryan's Daughter, Tora Tora Tora, Catch 22, The Owl and the Pussycat, Joe, The Boat Nicks, Five Easy Pieces at number 14, uh. Anne and Eve, which I have no idea what that is, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, <laughs> Ch <laughs> Chisholm, Kelly's Heroes, Two Mules for Sarah, Darling That's Lily. Called the... Two Mules for Sister Sarah. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Two Mules for Sister Sarah. Darling yeah. Lily, The Ballad of Cable Hogue, Myra Breckenridge, mm -hmm. The Molly Maguires, The Only Game in Town, THX 1138. Like, that mm -hmm. is an incredible top 26 movies of the box office. That just shows you such a wide array of the kinds of movies that were offered. You had animated films. You had action movies. You had tough guy movies. You had love stories. You know, just so many different films, you know. And you had a sex swap movie in Myra Breckenridge. Uh-huh, yeah. Which included a scene in which a good-looking, buff, mo uh, model, gay model guy was uh, uh, raped in the ass by by um, uh, uh, Raquel Welch. There's a scene where she straps on a thing and she oh does God. the guy, and he's kind of like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, and then the next You're year, I won't go into it too much and read every single year, but I just sometimes I look back yeah. and I'm just, my mind is blown by the box office like people say oh well all yeah. that stuff's on streaming no it isn't no it is not we don't have movies this good on streaming sorry we do not but here's the yeah. bo the box office for the next year billy jack which i loved as a kid Fid 71 Fid yeah fiddler on the roof okay. diamonds are forever the french connection summer of 42 dirty harry a clockwork orange the last picture show bed knobs and broomsticks Sweet Sweetback's Bead... What is that? Badass song. Yeah. What is it called? Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. <laughs> I've never even heard of that before. The Black Flirtation movie. Oh, okay. Willard, The Hospital, Clute, The Andromeda Strain, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Shaft, Cold Turkey, Play Misty for Me, The Big Dollhouse, McCabe and Mrs. Miller at 20, Big mm. Jake, The Million Dollar Duck, Willy Wonka, The Chocolate Factory, Murmur of the Heart, The Beguiled. I mean, it's just like, wow. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's like... Wonderful, um, wonderful culture back then. And uh, you can look at any year from the 60s, 70s, into the 80s, in the 90s, really. I mean, you can, you can, see, you can really uh, just uh, revel in, in, the, in the memories and, the, uh, and, you know, tell yourself. Of course, we're, when we run these lists off, we conveniently omit the awful movies that were also out there but still it's a uh, well that's just that's the top of the box office now let me read you the box office in this country today right now yeah uh, number one Ga guardians of the galaxy volume three it made right. 114 million so i guess it's sort of surpassed expectations the, mm -hmm. su the super mario brothers movie evil dead rise are you there god it's me margaret John, John Wick, Chapter 4, Love Again, Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, Air, The Covenant, Sisu, which I haven't heard of, Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, Big George Foreman, The Miraculous Story of the Once and Future Heavyweight Champion of the World, The Pope's Exorcist, Nefarious, Bo is Afraid, 
polite society. Now, let me just add, none of these movies have made any money at all. Like, John Wick, $180 million. Uh, Spy- Super Mario at 500 that's pretty good, $500 million. Ant-Man is $200 million. The rest of them are nothing, right? So when Yeah, I-, I thought that Margaret uh, kind of bombed when it opened and, or underperformed severely, and I didn't think it had it recovered, recovered or anything. Has it? Are you it's saying a, it's- it? No, it's at twelve million now, uh, okay. and it's at number four in over three thousand theaters. And so that's yeah. that's a that's a huge, 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 huge bomb. Um, mm. But Avatar: Way of Water never made as much ultimately as Top Gun: Maverick. It sits at six hundred and eighty-four. I'm just All saying, right. like, this is a wasteland. This box. Mm. That's exactly what Richard Dreyfus was talking about. You know, in his video, he talks about when he says movies suck, what he he didn't mean the woke stuff. He meant superhero sequel stuff, you know, this branded crap that they're giving. And um, and the problem is, is that they took that model and they wokeified it because they want to fix their fans. So in doing that, they've also alienated that fan base as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Because they want it, you know. Everybody gave put so much pressure on them, you know, don't be so white, don't be so male. Let's put women in there. Let's, you know, change it up a bit. Let's, you know, infuse our social justice ideology into this branded crap. So that's basically like if you go to McDonald's and you order a, a Big Mac and they give you a tofu burger instead. Yeah. <laughs> say, this is healthier for you. Here, go ahead. No, no, I want a cheeseburger. Well, sorry, we don't have any on the menu anymore because, you know, you need yeah. to eat healthier. And so that's what they did. Well, let's be clear about the the intentions of producers and the finance people behind these films. They don't want to necessarily uh, fix the audience by uh, elevating their their attitudes about things. They feel if they don't try to fix them, if they don't put woke into their films, uh, they might get some uh, pushback from the, as you called it, the royal court in your article. You know, mm. the people within the industry, they're afraid of what the pushback might be from the wokesters. And so they, they go along with it. Yeah. I mean, right. they have to do it, right? It's mandated now. They, they're yeah. literally people walking around with clipboards. And um, yeah. just like their sensitivity readers, you know, the ju- judging eyes are everywhere on an industry that is barely hanging on. Yeah. Uh, so not to start on a downer well, note. <laughs> I want to just tell you uh, up front and out loud that uh, the piece that you just posted about Richard Dreyfus, between Richard Dreyfus himself on the um, uh, on the video interview that he just did was a firing line, right? Yeah. And your follow-up piece, which I thought was just spot on, uh, I really, really uh, think that the, the two of you uh, delivered a nice one-two punch today. Oh. And if you watch the Richard Dreyfus. Uh, interview you have to read sasha stone's uh essay which is uh which is very well phrased and hats off and thank you for, um, jeff for helping me with it <laughs> jeff helped me prove it just so you know uh which is always a nice thing to have one of the best writers in the business helping you with something that you wrote um anyway yeah so i i feel like when I write something like that, as I told you, because I checked it with Jeff, I said, do you think I can post this? Is this too much? Like, are people going to freak out? 
And the thing that you said to me, which was, you know, what do you, what do you mean? Like, of course, just post it. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that I always feel like I'm standing on the edge of a, of a cliff, right? And I sometimes uh-huh. think like, okay, do I have a parachute or am I just going to land with a thud at the bottom? Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, you, you are going to be criticized and you are going to be attacked. And the only thing you can do is be just tune it out. You know, like you have to develop that adaptation to not care what people say because that'll kill you. You know, that, that'll just shut you up and make you scared and make you submissive. And that's really the problem all through the industry is that we're all just so afraid of being judged as bad people with bad intentions. Yeah. The, you know? com- the commenters that often show up in Hollywood elsewhere are very much with the, with the, with the woke brigade. And one thing you can be pretty much guaranteed, you're going to be belittled six ways from Sunday by that crowd. Right. And they always come up with these rationales. They always bend over backwards and say, listen, it's, you know, you're, you know, if you, you just have to stop being a Republican or you have to join the Republican right. Party. And it's not a Republican thing. It's a sensible thing. It's, a, it's an average person thing. It's, a non, it's simply a non-woke thing. You can't get uh, over that. But that's, that's all it is. And I think that people who are in the woke brigade and feel that the, the, the revolution, if you will, the, the, the overhaul of Hollywood, which began in 20, although I tend to think it began in, in stages, starting in 15, 16, certainly 17 after Harvey Weinstein. But the uh, 20 is when you believe it really kicked in. And I think that uh, they, that even the advocates of this whole thing, the whole equity thing, you know, all of it, uh, they, I think they must understand at this point that there's enough people uh, with with respected voices who have um, said, "Listen, this is crazy, man. This is this is this is not you know good for Hollywood. It's 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 instructive. It's berating. It's uh, you know it's not entertaining, really." And I think they understand that the tide has kind of turned. It's not, it's not this big like, well, all right, we're we're changing everything, and you have to listen to us, and you have to go along. I think that that uh, mindset has uh, been uh, uh, slowed, if not stopped. And I think that there's a real standoff between what I call the sensible people and the crazy people. I don't know. I don't think so uh-huh. because the people in power still. I mean, you know, they, they say that thing to you about the Republican because they know it's your really tender spot and they want to hit that. Before I my politics change, which my politics um, at their core haven't changed, I just hang around with Republicans more and I sympathize with them. Not Republicans, populists. There's a middle ground of people who are adrift, you know, who are uh-huh. still into free thinking and stuff and they don't know where to land. And the thing is, is that's, you know, I tend to be in, in with that group more, but because I like them better and I like hanging out with them. I like talking to them. I like their comedy is still alive over there. They don't take everything you say and condemn you for it. They're not policing every word, every thought, every gesture, you know, that that's a drag on the left. There's no fun for people who have everything. There's not a more miserable group of people who are just unhappy bitter because they can't laugh at anything and because storytelling has been taken away from them and because people are judging them every time so all they can do is turn it around and judge you jeff and point their finger at you and you're bad if only you could behave well 
I happen to know that your commenters have always hated me. They hated me back yeah. when it was a totally different group of people and I was a Hillary supporter, Democrat, and I was a feminist and I was woke and I was all that stuff. They hated me. It's just that they found different spots that were tender to push. You know, it was back then it was, you know, you're ugly, you're old, you're fat. Um, and now it's, you know, you're a Republican, you're far right, you're an extremist, you're a terrorist, whatever it is, you're a racist. You know, yeah. um, uh, all that stuff is just ammunition for people whose only war is a war of words. But, you know, ultimately, I think you have to get to a place in this country and in life where you give people the benefit of the doubt first and you, you give them a benefit of the doubt that, okay, at their core, they're good people. Everybody is their own thing and has their own things they believe in and their own things they uh -huh. care about. But people aren't, most people aren't evil and bad. You know, evil and bad is easy to spot. You know, Hitler, Charles Manson. Right? It's easy. It, you know, these people drift in and out, horrible child molesters, thieves, people who are violent, rapists, murderers. They do exist, right? But most people are just trying to get through the day, you know, and, and do their thing and, and have a job and have relationships and find some happiness. We're a lonely, isolated, miserable royal court of people who hate each other, you know? It's just really depressing, all in all. Um, so I think you get a lot of shit, but listen, dude, they're addicted to your site and they can't walk away from it because they know that every other website is mind-numbingly boring. It's uniform. Yeah. It's mixed speech. Like, it's, there's no difference from column to column, from idea to idea. There's no original thought. There's no life yeah. aboard, right? Well, there's different kinds of enthusiasm that some people have. Uh, a, a genuine, if bizarre, enthusiasm for certain, you know, franchise superhero superhero films or 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 certain small uh, films about marginal, uh, you know, cultures or whatever. You know, there, there is genuine enthusiasm. I, I'm not calling it cynical, but they are all in the same kind of. Um, they're part of the same chorus. I mean, by the way, the, one of the things that. Uh, what what uh, Richard Dreyfus in his uh, firing line interview? He said that he was you know just disgusted or you know makes him vomit the idea that there has to be uh, inclusion in everything, starting with uh, twenty for the Oscars that is. And <clears throat> I took one of the things I took from me, he was lamenting that, that you can't have any more Laurence Olivier's doing performing Othello. Um, Paul Robeson had a great Othello at the in Avon, England, Stratford at Avon. But Olivier's Othello, which came out in '65, was from the National Theatre. It was a British film, and it was uh, quite um, quite respected. And um, there was a very very strong, very impassioned review of uh, Olivier's Othello, which I found, by the way, on YouTube. It's completely um, 4K and high quality and the entire thing is just sitting there you don't have to pay or rent or anything and i put up the review of paul that uh, an excerpt from pauline kale's uh, review which was in mccall's magazine where she was before she started with the new yorker in late 67 and um right away rod lurie in uh, facebook he says here's a he picked up on it so here's a goodie from film critic history pauline kale's review of Lawrence olivier's othello if she wrote this today, Lori says, she would never publish another word 
for the rest of her life. <laughs> um, here's part of what she said. I don't, have you ever seen Lawrence Olivier's Othello? This, uh, I, I can't recall. Okay. Mm. Anyway, uh, she said that part of the pleasure of the performance is, of course, the sheer feat of Olivier's transforming himself into a Negro. Yet it is not wasted. And it's not uh, it's not mere exhibitionism or actor's vanity for what Negro actor at this stage in the world's history would dare bring the effrontery that Olivier does and which Negro actor would give it this reading. I saw Paul, Paul Robeson and he was not as black as Olivier. Oh, shit. There you go. And and she's saying in terms of manner, in terms of presentation, in terms of, she feels that uh, Olivier was kind of crazier, basically. And, of course, all the people who immediately commented on Rod Lurie's, uh, uh, you know, capturing what I posted, like Jeremy Foster, the awful Jeremy Foster. <laughs> Every time I try to get into Pauline Kale, run into shit like this, and I'm turned off from pursuing any further. I love her profiles, of course, her piece on Carrie Grant is a treasure, but she's got a ton of black marks on her career. Intended with this and her pan of Shoah probably being the most egregious. Other people going, oh, no. Another guy going, oof, this is truly appalling, says another guy. Um, One woman, Audrey, going, wow. Uh, Who are these people? Glenn Kenny pops in and says, that's not, if Pauline Kale wrote this thing about a white guy playing Othello, she'd be scooped up by the National Review or the new Criterion. Oh, God, here he goes. Here he goes. Or commentary. That's not true. That is not true. See, this is what bugs me about the left, is that they that they think everybody on the right is racist, and that is their, that is their, their kryptonite. That's the worst thing about them, because it's not mm-hmm. true, man. It is not true. Nobody on the right would say that, that that uh, Lawrence Olivia was more black than Paul Robeson. They just would never say it. People don't, nobody would say that today, right? That's something Pauline Kael said back at a time when people were free thinking and just said stuff. Boy, if if they're shocked by that, I could give them a pretty long list. Let's, let's start with Hunter S. Thompson. Let's start with Hunter S. Thompson's book about the 1972 election. You, you want to freak yourselves out, right? Look it. You want to start looking into the past Yes, you're going to find a lot of thought crimes, bro. Like there's and if they're going to be pearl clutching like that in their in their um in their sanctuary, their woke sanctuary of pristine words and phrases and thought, I have news for you friends. In like 20 years, 30 years, maybe 50 years, all these same people are going to be dragged into another tribunal of a different kind and judged for everything that they're doing now. In fact, I'm I'm trying to write this sci-fi book right now about how they're going to condemn our generation right now for how we're treating animals. And people are going to be punished for having uh, eaten red meat, for having gone along with factory farming, and all that stuff. Like, it's going to be the new thing that people are judged about. And everybody's going to try to say, oh, well, you just don't understand what it was like back then. And it's not going to matter because the only thing that's going to resonate are the, the, the actions that are going to stay with time. Like what they did to pigs, what they're doing to pigs, right? 
And so I'm not saying that, that anybody this in our era is really going to care that much. But in 10, 20 years, in the, the gender-affirming uh, care stuff, those chickens are going to come home to roost. And all the people in your comments section that stood up for it and fought for it and defended it, they're all going to have to be held accountable. And we have to hold their feet to the fire and say, you went along with this and you can't pretend that you didn't because you didn't have the guts to stand up to it and you thought you were being a savior. But all of these people who are, who are waging class action lawsuits because they can't have children and because they can't function sexually and because their bodies are useless to them now are going to wonder, why didn't you all protect us? Why didn't you say something? Why didn't you do something? When all of them become adults, that's what's going to happen. And so they can be as judgmental as they want now of her, but they have to condemn her as a person instead of understanding that back then, that's how people thought. Give her the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, so she said that. She didn't mean anything bad by it. She's not a bad person. She's not a racist. She just thought it was an interesting thing to say at the time. And so she wrote it. You know, I, I, and we always think the worst of people. You know, like that's our, that's our default. Think the worst of everybody. Well, let's say in, you know, 100 years, people are being condemned for having eaten pork. Every single person who eats bacon now is a monster. And nobody's going to look at their intentions. They're just going to say, you ate the bacon because you wanted to, right? But we, we know because we're living through it. There's something evil about eating crisp bacon with your, with your fried eggs? Not today, but maybe in 50 years there will be, yeah. Because, of, because we're, we're t- it's, it involves the slaughtering of pigs? It's not the slaughtering of pigs. It's the way that we raise and produce animals in this country right now to feed millions and millions of people oh you mean the torture horrific yeah which those poor animals are i mean it's it's beyond monstrous and the only reason that it's not a bigger deal is because people have not yet evolved the empathy yeah empathy takes time to evolve and i think we're moving in the right direction as a species in my opinion but um you know i'm just saying that eventually and and i would never i would make the same argument in 50 years, I'm not going to live that long, obviously, but I would make that same argument that I'm making now. You got to give people the benefit of the doubt that they didn't know what they're doing. And look at Jeremy Fassler sounds like he's in a convent, you know, like, okay, go live in a convent, you know, and and make your your reality so pristine. In in his response that there is a piece in Commentary Magazine that basically says that the guy who was Frank uh, suffocated to death on the subway by the Marine <coughs> that he um, basically had it coming. Uh, I think that people have a lot of different opinions about this. I don't think that anybody had it coming, has it coming to die, you know, I, but I don't, I also don't think that the Marine intentionally murdered him. I think he was accidentally trying to be the hero and he, he pressed too hard and he held on for too long. Yeah. Just like Derek Chauvin did, you know? Yeah. In both of these cases, they were trying to subdue someone and they were doing it with people watching. Derek Chauvin had a whole team of rookies he was training and a whole crowd telling him to get off of George Floyd. And he was trying to prove a point with his ego and he kept his knee on there too long and poor George Floyd died. And, and this guy, this guy, the same thing. He was in a room, car full of people. He was playing the hero. He's a, he's a vet. Uh, he's a military guy. He thought he was doing the right thing, and he thought he would walk away a hero, and his that video would go viral, and everybody would praise him for a job well done. But he held on too tight, and he held on too long, 
and he didn't know what he was doing and he shouldn't have done it you know uh, remember he wasn't alone there were two guys assisting him yeah. as he held uh, uh, Jordan Neely down so it wasn't entirely the marine no no but the people who should be held accountable for this are the the city the people who failed uh this guy because he he had been arrested over 40 times he tried to uh, abduct a seven-year-old girl he hit a woman in the face he he almost threw this guy off the train platform and he kept they kept just releasing him back into the public so you tell me like this is a guy who should have been in the hospital and um and they just kept releasing him and releasing him releasing him over 40 arrests 40 this is a guy who's not going to ever be a contributing member uh, of society who's ever going to behave in a moderate fashion. He's clearly, uh, you know, he had a theatrical, I'm bigger than life feeling because he was a, a, a brilliant Michael Jackson impersonator. And he yeah. just early in life that he was not going to be just a, a clock puncher, you know, during going to a job and being modest and unassuming he he had an idea that he was larger than that and it didn't work out and of course people who are convinced that they've got something astonishing and and brilliant uh, incandescent inside them they're not very good at adapting to society's rules i mean if you look at who charles manson was he wanted to be a songwriter he felt that he had something exceptional in him and of course, that didn't pan out, and his songs were not appreciated, and so he, you know, turned his energies into the, of the horrors that happened subsequently in '68, '69. So, well, I mean, my my daughter lived in New York, and I'm glad she got out of it because they're not, they don't care about their working class citizens who have to get on the subway every day and try to survive it. People yeah. are killed on the subway, assaulted on the subway, mugged. And um and and nobody cares. They need they need a bad guy, right? And I understand that human beings have that kind of mind, right? We need to be able to make rational sense of a chaotic world. He needs to take his rage and anger somewhere. Mm-hmm. And for him, and for too many people on the left, they aim it at others, and then they do it on the right too. They do the exact same thing, you know. They ain't they rate they aim their anger at somebody like Dylan Mulvaney, right? Who doesn't deserve it? Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's just a mess, man. It's a mess, but I wish we could just be a little less judgmental of each other and and condemning constantly. Saying to, to say that there's something horrible about Pauline Kael because she was absorbing Laurence Olivier, the one of the greatest actors of, of all time, certainly of the 20th century, and he's and all she did was process what he had done. He took, you know, there it was such a thing as people of different ethnicities playing other ethnicities and it uh, I mean that in the early 60s remember the James Whitmore thing black like me he played a played a guy who went out into the world pretending to be a person of color and it was well remember remember Sandra Bernhardt in King of Comedy where she's like I just want to get I just want to get wild I want to be black yeah (laughs) I want to be you know um, I think that you know things were just so different back then and how we all talk to each other and and listen um that era was another era kind of like this one like if you go back and you look at toys r us they had very inclusive toys and movies were inclusive like 
there was an effort back then to because of the black power movement, you know, and the feminist movement, there was an effort to to do what they're doing now, which is to be representative okay. in movies. That's why uh, the movie I was watching Sleeper, which is hilarious. Sleeper Sleeper is a great metaphor for what we're living through today, except that you have to once again, just like with McCarthyism, you have to switch the ideologies because in the 70s, we were the counterculture on the left. Mm -hmm. um, and now we're not, on, not they are not, I'm not on the left anymore. So the left is not the counterculture anymore. Mm -hmm. But so you have Diane Keaton, who is a, um, oh, kitty. <laughs> Diane Keaton lives in this, like, you know, this, this sort of insulated arist aristocratic world, right? Yeah. Very prissy and very stuck on herself and very but, super. But because yeah. they're they're just there, they don't have any free thought because it's all being given to them and, and their their brains are all programmed. And then outside of that is is, you know, is the underground and the underground in the movie are Marxists. Mm -hmm. But so you have to sort of flip them because the Marxist mm -hmm. ideology tends to be on the inside. Now, it's the one thing that people predicting the future got wrong. They yeah. assumed that it would be the conservatives who had the power um but anyway so anyway that that movie has surprisingly inclusive in the casting but that's because it was the 70s and it had to be you know so you see a lot of black faces believe it or not um all throughout the sleeper in the future what's that weird noise i'm sorry it uh i i was look about to turn it off um it was uh, a friend calling sorry Oh, that's okay. Anyway, so that's I don't even know what we were talking about or how we got to this place, but but that's but that's the idea. Uh, like, a Pauline Kale. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Pauline. Pauline and, you know, you can't like say that a critic is is like, oh my god, she's worse than I thought she was. And yet, um, I love her Cary Grant pieces and her great piece piece about Bonnie and Clyde and the way she and that off that wonderful piece about the hollywood and the way things really run called the numbers that ran in 82 in new yorker she's you can't throw you know you can't throw out the baby in the bathwater you you know if a person she just was reacting to what uh, that was a, a totally respectable thing and there was nothing regressive or or diseased about people who respected or uh, Laurence Olivier's performance as Othello. I thought I was just looking at it for about fifteen twenty minutes portions because the entire play, as I said, is is available on YouTube and and, and in a pretty reasonable sh uh, way. It's uh it's in four K, and uh, it's it's really a decent uh, job. Very very good. I mean, if you just get past the fact that he's that it's quote unquote inauthentic ethnic casting, white guy playing black guy, but if you just Okay, that was not cool by today's standards. I understand that. But just look at the performance, for God's sake. But nobody will even do that. And that's all she was doing at the time. Well, you know, uh, we're living through a time where every single white person is assumed racist. Right? That, that yeah. racism lives deep inside of them. And that they're just waiting for a moment for it to be discovered. Or It's like witchcraft, you know, in Salem in, in, in 1692. It's like... It lives inside yeah. of you and you mm -hmm. are, you know, you need to be absolved of this sin. And if, if you say the wrong thing, or if you watch that movie, or if you praise Pauline Kael, um, or if you sympathize with the Marine who unfortunately, you know, choked that guy to death, 
then you are a racist. You are this bad thing, the worst thing you can be in our culture right now. The worst thing you could be. Something that condemns you forever. Well, that and being transphobic. Those two things are like, nobody's ever going to look at that in any sort of rational way. Now, would would anybody write that about uh, that Pauline, what Pauline Kell? Obviously not, right? No, no. not today's culture. And I wouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't feel that way, but I would put, I would put some honest response to the actual performance, not the guy having, being of the wrong ethnicity. But there's a performance going on here. And it's a pretty amazing performance if you look at it. I mean, just consider what he's doing. Well, all she would it's, have it's... had to say was, <laughs> instead of more black than a black man, she could have said, you know, he's more Shakespearean, perhaps. I don't know. There's no way around that one. Like, yeah, that's not anything anybody today would ever touch or speak honestly about, even if they thought the performance was, was better. Yeah. Um, I was saying, forget the ethnic authenticity or lack of. Watch the performance. <clears throat> One of the main acts on Hollywood Elsewhere's <clears throat> comic thread, uh, seasonal affect disorder. <clears throat> I'm enjoying Jeff's pro blackface performance phase. Hopefully, he'll do a thousand words next on why Al Jolson should be celebrated. You know the jazz singer. Well, so what's yeah. what is what is his uh, what is his? Um, he wants to say Al Jolson was the root of all evil, worse than Charles Manson. Is that is that where he's going with well, this? There's no forgiveness of a Al moment Jolson in time. And shows which have been, you know, people find the idea despicable. But minstrel shows, which were white guys pretending to be people of color with, uh, you know, in blackface is uh, nothing, you know, nobody would ever, you know, consider giving any kind of respect to that kind of thing. But uh, he's he's equating it. He's saying that I'm I'm going to do a, a thousand words about minstrel shows. Now, is, these people are, in, are insane. There's a true demonic element in them. They just take what they find inflammatory or on not not cool. And then they start throwing all kinds of stuff at you just because I thought it was a decent, really fascinating review that was written outside the realm of the current insanity. It was written 50 years ago or actually 55 years ago. Well, I'll tell you this, Jeff. Um, I've been fascinated by your comment section for as long as I've known you. And that's since like 2006 or whatever. I don't even know how long that is now. I've never counted, but we've been friends a long time. Uh. And... um. And I've always been hated by your your concept. But one thing I've always been fascinated by is that they have cast you in this role of daddy. Like you're the you're the madman dad to them. You're like uh what's his name? The cute guy in uh, Mad Men. Um, what was his name again? Draper. You're like Don Draper to them. You're like a you're like yeah. a, a a a daddy of an era that is gone now that doesn't exist anymore because I don't know how to say this anyway, except bluntly. There are no like sort of real men on the left. (laughs) It's not a terrible thing to say, but like they just don't exist. Right. And you are, you know, you're unapologetically masculine. I mean, you're obviously, you know, an intellectual as well, but I mean, you are to them, you know, you're, you're the patriarchy. Like you are the thing that they want to rail against because you're like their father figure at a time when we just really don't have that many figures like that in American life, you know? 
And so I feel like they, they've always treated, no matter who the president was, no matter what the politics have been, I've always found that this particular class of people that, mm-hmm. that visit your site do so for that reason. Like they're hitting, and I think on my site for a long time, I had that same thing, like mean mommy, you know, like I was sort of cast as the mommy figure, the hated mommy figure by so many people. Yeah. I think if you just, you're an authority and you run a website, maybe, like how many people out there that we know in our industry are doing what we're doing? Just giving our voices out there on a blog. Like, does it even exist anymore? The vast majority of, uh, of politically agile and, uh, and smart in terms of their own survival are just going along with whatever, wherever the prevailing winds are coming from. And they're uh, all hired by other websites. And so they're writing columns and I go and I do a, Every day I'm I'm supposed to be doing a, a mailing list on my website, which is that I, I take the news headlines of the day and I post it. And every single day I try to start one. I go around to all the trades, Variety, Deadline, Hollywood Reporter, Google mm-hmm. News, and I look at the headlines. And I mean, honestly, speaking of the writer's strike, these could have been written by AI. All this stuff could be. Yeah, correct. Because it's yeah. so much in keeping with the status quo. And nobody, like, we were talking about Guardians of the Galaxy, and we had this long conversation, remember, yesterday. And we were trying to figure out, I was trying to figure out, like, what's the elephant in the room here? <laughs> like, what are people talking about without talking about it? You know, like, you have to always do that with every story in, in entertainment. Like we did with Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. What's going on? Why yeah. did this movie bomb? What, what happened? You know? you know what happened with air like what's what's the bigger picture here and and so few people the only person i can think of in the mainstream is michael seepley he's the only one who will sort of get into it a little bit you know deadline i think it's pronounced simply no simply. you don't give it a sound i don't know but he was uh david carr's friend and so he i'm yeah. glad to see that he's at least trying to um yeah. peter peter bart probably too i would imagine mm-hmm. Although I haven't seen a lot of stuff from him lately, but um, but I'm not tooting our own horn. We get a lot of shit, both of us, and we're you know we're always teetering on the edge of collapse at any minute, and um, that's how I feel. Like I'm always just standing right at the edge of the cliff, waiting for it all to be over. <laughs> but uh, by the way, of Laurence Olivier and playing a person of color, there was another one that he another performance that was pretty uh, pretty pretty striking, pretty dynamic. Uh, he wasn't an evil person for doing it, but he was hired to play the Mahdi, one the Islamic uh, North African uh, leader of the Islamic uh, uh, rebellion, who wound up killing uh, General Chinese Gordon, played by Charlton Heston, uh, in this uh, Basil Dearden, I think, was the director, and it was called Khartoum, and it was shot in Super Panavision. Have you ever seen it? Mm-mm. It's a it's a it's a very com- fascinating, compelling, strong performance by Olivier. He doesn't have much screen time. In fact, it's really just a couple of scenes or three or four. It's really Charlton Heston's film, uh, at least in terms of screen time and and, and dominance and what, whatever. But it's it's really fascinating. So he so Olivier did it uh, twice. So it wasn't like he was well, on drugs. Right, I'll give you an example of today, how it might have gone down, right? Uh, everybody knows that Natalie Wood was brilliant in West Side Story. 
as Maria. Like she she broke the mold. She was incredible, beautiful, talented. She did a very good job. She really did. Uh, her she was dubbed though. Let's keep that in mind. For and singing, second... she was dubbed for singing, but her <laughs> accent and her back in 1961 for, you know, why is this Natalie Wood, this Russian-born woman who's from basically half Russian or mostly Russian, uh, why is she playing a, a woman All right. of... So cut of, cut to right. Steven Spielberg's version where he actually gets a Latina actress. Yeah, yeah. So if some critic wrote, Natalie Wood was better at being Latina than... <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> that would be a similar... Uh -huh. kind of thing to you know that would send all of your commenters into you know hysteria and nobody would ever write that but i mean that is arguably a, a good comparison like who's better who do you think is better be honest who's better in those two performances i think she's wonderful actually i really think she did an excellent job uh given that she was not the real authentic deal and you know she was hired to do give her best and she was she didn't do the singing she wasn't Puerto Rican, but she was a she. She was a real woman who I cared for, and I I, I felt her heart and her 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 passion throughout. She, she's amazing. Film. There's no question that Natalie Wood was better. There's no question about it, regardless of their, you know, ethnicity. I'm sorry, but it's just the fact. And and there's no honest person that would disagree with that. Can I ask you something? Uh, this is uh, goes back about a year, I think. But Tom Hanks uh, got, made a couple of headlines when he said to a guy in the, I think it was a New York Times interviewer, in fact, New York Times magazine, and he says that he could never get away today with playing Andy, the, the, the gay attorney in Philadelphia. Uh, one, he's not gay and therefore it's inauthentic. What do you feel? Is that a, a valid thing? Because I think that's bullshit. I think that uh, a guy who's being a good actor who's being hired to play a white guy who happens to be gay and is besieged with a horrible disease because of his proximity or you know of having had sex with other guys and it was a very problematic thing obviously back then so it, it, i think it's completely allowable but he feels that no you can't do that uh, that philadelphia which is 30 years old this year uh what do you think do you think that, that that's out that's out too you can't have a straight guy play a gay guy i think it's it's more weirdly i don't know i no, i don't agree with that and i don't agree that you know non-trans people should play trans people and only trans people should play i don't agree with any of that and i understand why we're in this mess that we're in and why people are so freaked out about it and the patriarchy this and all that i get all that so i'm not I'm just saying you have to you have to try to figure out what role does art play in your life? What's the point of storytelling going all the way back to Aristotle? Why did we go? Look, in Shakespeare, they couldn't put women on stage, so they all had to be men dressed up as women to get the job done. And in old-timey Hollywood, black people couldn't get work. People of color couldn't get work, so white people had to play those parts to tell those stories. Somehow we're condemning one but not the other because they're oppressed and the white people are oppressive i get all that right that's our history that's why we arrived but then you have to ask yourself is it was it better for for women to play the the women's parts in shakespeare yeah probably um you know is it better for black characters to play black characters obviously yes yeah does that mean that that uh that natalie wood still wasn't better no not really but i mean maybe it comes down to talent i don't know 
But, you know, these are all really weird questions to ask. Now, uh, another interesting thing would be, to is Tom Hanks, would he be able to play the Forrest Gump character? And would that movie be made today? Would Dustin Hoffman have been allowed to play Rain Man? You're saying that it's uh, incorrect for people who are not, uh, uh, well, mentally challenged, let's say. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're getting there, right? Aren't we? Yeah. We're getting to the point where only autistic kids can play characters with autism, only kids with Down syndrome, you know. Um, also, then I asked myself this question. And people will always say to us, Jeff, they'll say, well, you're part of the privileged class. You're white people. So you would never understand what it feels like to be not represented. And the whole point is to make people feel represented. The teeny tiny portion of our population that might be offended, we have to make sure that they're not offended. Uh Um, And I always ask myself this. When I'm watching a movie uh, of two people having sex, let's say the most, you know, intense and realistic versions of it from nine and a half weeks to um damage like we just watched to the don't look now whatever it is um are they really having sex no does it matter no uh-huh. because you have suspension of disbelief right and that's the whole point of of movies now we live at a time when the only thing that matters is identity it's literally the only how do you brand yourself and the only people that are left out of that are white standard cisgendered heteronormative white people aka the majority yeah they're the only people who are men and just like my daughter in in her ninth grade class and her critical race theory class in high school all the white kids had to stand outside the circle they weren't allowed to participate in the class and only the people of color were allowed now it's hard enough and outside what circle just the circle of conversation like all the people in the middle who were people of color in her class and this weird magnet that I unfortunately sent her to were allowed to talk about history and all the white people had to stand outside the circle and just listen. So if you're in high school and you're a ninth grade girl and you're already freaked out about everything and then you're, this is added on to it, the shame of having been born white, you know, the shame of it. That's what so they the want to instill. Thing, if, you're, uh, if you're white, you have to shut up and listen because you don't have anything that uh, to contribute. Yeah. Because you can't because of your 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 white ethnicity. So just shut up and sit there. And the people who have been affected, they can talk. Of course. Yeah. Exactly. You- like everybody can have culture, and yeah. celebrate that culture and be celebrated for it, except white people. Yeah. And they have to not. And and so uh, I think it's unhealthy to treat a society like that when you're talking about the majority of people. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, so, you know, I don't, that's how you get to Glenn Kenny and your commenters. Like, I, yeah. I feel bad for them because they, they have no purpose. No, no, mm. nobody is listening to them, you know, to right. us. Like, you know, I, I think it's a hard place to be for, especially for white men, you know, um, to understand that, you know, when you're ca- talking about art and you're talking about writing uh, and directing and, and acting, you know, that you, you have to be willing to just say, okay, there, we are talking about talent. You know, we are talking about ability. And sometimes that's not going to be ideal in terms of satisfying the needs that you have for identity. Um, I don't know. Like, I think it's a conversation worth having in a nice, humane way rather than, a, a, you know, 
an accusatory way, as people are doing with you. It wouldn't have been, been nice if they didn't make it about Jeff Wells. Mm. And they could have just talked about it the way we're talking about it, you know? Um, I don't know. Well, it's funny. Uh, here we are more or less agreeing that that they that you that crossing ethnic lines is not a good idea in this culture today. I don't think we would argue with that. And it uh, it's it's but but it is OK in my humble view for a person who's straight to play a person who's gay. I, I don't see the issue if you can sell it, if you can feel it, if you believe it. I don't think that anything matters other than the, the technique, the feeling, the, the, you know, whether it gets to you, the performance, and you buy it. That's all that should matter. And, but it doesn't because uh, the, the, the way our culture works right now is, is because of the, the great awakening of 2020 is there's a reverse hierarchy, right? So the people who had no power before suddenly have all of the power, right? So uh, to take a part away from a gay person means that you are you know defying that power that they have to say you're not allowed to do that not that they care most gay people i know don't but um but this whatever this weird activist you know thought police. wait you just said most people that you know don't care if another tom hanks comes along of course the people like andrew sullivan or whatever my friend michael who's gay they don't care um it's just this weird strident army out there yeah. you know the the jeremy fasslers who are just yeah. you know we're puritans and right. we are pure and perfect and we do everything and think everything right and if we don't we apologize to do better we self-flagellate right. yeah. um and and look jack nicholson let's let's just look at the array of characters that he's played let's take cardinal knowledge because we're going to talk about that yeah. Yeah. jack nicholson is not that character he's not a misogynist asshole yet he was able to find authenticity find that character and portray it brilliantly so that's what acting is right um and and he's not playing a marginalized group so no one's going to say anything but mm -hmm. it's the same thing he's playing somebody that is not himself Some... well you want to hear something that he uh said in a couple of interviews and i know to be a gen what he generally uh, uh experienced he was he said he was given a lot of shit by women after that film came out uh... they didn't believe he was performing that they believe on some level that he was number one cast by mike nichols because he has that jonathan uh quality in him that he's got a chauvinistic streak that kind of comes out or at least he can sell it he, and you believe it and and he was in he said he had a, a you know generally speaking women that he would meet or get trying to get to know they didn't like what he did and they feel that he was kind of guilty for that I know. Well, he and but every woman who's ever known him says he's like the greatest guy. Like Diane Keaton said, she was in. She's in love with him. Like every woman who knows him knows that he loves women, mm -hmm. and he's a brilliant actor, right? I, I can't think of a single Jack Nicholson performance that I don't a hundred percent believe he's that character. Whether it's Terms of Endearment or The Shining or uh, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest or, you know, About Schmidt, which I just watched and absolutely love, fell in love with because I didn't really like it when it first came out, but um. He's just a brilliant actor. That's the art of acting that he can make you believe. And you do believe, you do believe that he's that guy in that movie. <laughs> it's such a good movie. But it is very disturbing. Um, it's a very yeah. disturbing film. Um, and so the point that I was making, by the way, about Rita Moreno is that there's a scene at the very end where 
where his character Jonathan is has been so enfeebled. If I guess would one be one of the pointing out, uh, he's not able to have a, a sexual relationship unless he has fantasy. And this woman played by Rita Moreno, a mm. prostitute, uh, she has to kind of tell him about what a magnificent fellow he is, and he doesn't have. He doesn't have to be loyal to a woman because he, but he's loyal to himself and he's got this wonderful, powerful energy. And when he hears all this stuff, <clears throat> he's able to achieve an erection and, and have sexual mm -hmm. uh, release. Yeah. And this whole bizarre thing. It's interesting <clears throat> that the uh, director, who did a pretty good documentary about uh, Rita Moreno, it was about Rita Moreno's victim blaming you know attitude about herself which is that she's had a uh a fascinating life but she's always been shat upon by the male establishment they've never really gotten her they treated her as an exotic sex object in the 50s and then when she was Marie, uh, uh anita in in west side story you know she was kind of typecast as the latin spitfire and she had a tough time anyway the long and the short is that uh, the woman who made the documentary, who assembled it, did not want to, to did, ignored this fascinating little performance that she gave at the end of Carnal Knowledge. Yeah. Because she didn't approve of a woman, a Latina woman who's a proud Latina, who's a, kind of iconic and very famous and beloved. She didn't want to talk about her playing a prostitute. So in other yeah. words, she's basically saying, politically speaking, this is not, I'm not interested in the truth about this woman or where where she went or, or the impact she made as an actress, I'm, we're interested only in presenting a certain face to her Latin pride, to her history. And you can't right. talk about, you know. Well, you know it, I mean. it reminds me of, um, it's just, it's a touch, it's a touchy subject that nobody today would do. They would never cast a movie full of white women and then have the prostitute be a woman of color like they just never do that even if they did in the 70s it does come off looking like he's saying that he's at the bottom of the barrel and at the bottom of the barrel means he's you know he's with this this older you know ethnic looking woman as opposed to you know all these supremely white looking women um it reminds me of like the dirty harry movies you know like if you watch those and you see all the uh shooting of black criminals and you know that would never happen today like that would never be cast that way um, Where because... he shoots the, the in uh, a sudden impact in '83, I mean the when they're no, I think I, are... I I can't remember if it's sudden impact. I think that that stuff was earlier. The black c criminals that you know because when uh what's it uh so really uh, Robert um, Townsend Melvin Van Van Peebles I'm not sure no Robert Townsend the filmmaker made a movie called I'm gonna get you sucker which is a okay. which, which was All a right. funny movie about stereotypical it's a hilarious really brilliantly made i thought yeah. um satire of how hollywood stereotyped black people um yeah. and black men as criminals and so you know you know dirty harry's always chasing them down you know and it's always an i'm gonna get you suck uh, uh and that was just acceptable back in the 70s and and now um we would never ever do that it's the same with rita moreno you know like that would that casting would never be Allowed. It's funny. I, I see what your point is, and that uh, it's it's seen as kind of an ethnic casting. I don't I don't actually see it that way because clearly Jack Nicholson is an enfeebled, weak, pathetic man at that point in the in the film, and he's uh, being played or used by this woman who's 
performing for him. No, she's obviously not stupid. She's just playing along with him because it, it's a business deal. And no, exactly. But the, the but the visual matters because you yeah. know Mike Nichols is, puts him with Anne Margaret and Candace Bergen. Yeah. You know, and he's always he's so judgmental about women, and they have to have big tits and this and that. And um, and then this woman is obviously not his ideal beauty because she looks okay. a lot older. She's flat chested, and it's supposed to be like you know he needs look look. What makes him a brilliant filmmaker mm. is that he's able to tell that story, and the way he can tell the only way he can tell that story is to show that this guy finally yeah. in the end has given up everything that he says he wants he's given up yeah. all of the things that he measures women by and he can't have a relationship he can't mm -hmm. you know all he's left with is being serviced by a prostitute that he pays now the movie would have worked just as well with anybody else in that part like it didn't have to be a latina or a black woman or anything like that you know it wasn't about that but it's just that today's audiences would read it that way and Boy, it would funny. be cast by a white it would have to be cast with a white woman yeah okay and and it couldn't well, even it couldn't that. even be a, like an overweight wh white woman anymore like oh my goodness it would have to be <laughs> i mean we're running out of uh you know because they, they can't you know they can't offend anybody so it couldn't be you know it would have to be someone that would be totally safe and in fact they probably wouldn't even have that scene let's face it they wouldn't even make this movie even though it goes along with their ideas about what men are you know it would not no one would dare to make a film about a, a, a problematic, seriously problematic <clears throat> male chauvinist pig. And of course, Art Garfunkel is less problematic, but he's kind of part of the syndrome. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway. He is. And, and in fact, the movie's very funny because um, I actually didn't think it was, Sorry. of all the Mike Nichols movies that he's made, and he's made a lot of really great ones. I didn't think this one was the best directed. I was watching it because because he's a little bit, I think, too heavy handed on the scenes where he focuses just on the women's faces while the scenes are playing out, uh -huh. and he stays on them just a little too long, I think. And he makes his point, but I, I think he overdoes it. Uh, I'm thinking of the scene where Candace Bergen is laughing, and and he just the whole scene's playing out. He just keeps yeah. the camera on her. And then the tennis the game. There's a brilliant, remember the tennis game scene? When, the tennis, when, uh, yeah. And not playing. And you oh, you just hear them batting the ball, but you don't ever see them playing. And it's all on Anne-Margaret and her feelings of, you know, they don't respect me. They're rejecting me. Uh -huh. I don't get to play. I feel badly about myself. They're reinforcing negative stereotype uh, feelings I have about myself. Yeah. Brilliant scene, actually. and it's it's the beginning of feminism, and so it was probably seen very much as a inside the internal world of women, yeah. um, very feminist movie, very much in keeping with the woke sort of ideology of today. Yeah. Um, but but I thought just personally that it was, and maybe mm -hmm. that's because it would have been electrifying back then mm -hmm. to see something like that. Um, and today it just feels like it's kind of like, well, mm -hmm. sure, of course, you know, like <laughs> there's something uh, particularly new about that. Um, but as you said, huh. the best scene is that their argument, you know, when she's in bed and and uh, she said, he says, you got to just get away from me. You know, what are you doing with me? I'm just nothing but abusive to you. And she's like, you're not the worst I've ever had. or something like that. <laughs> You should see what I'm used to. And then he flies off into it. Will you just get off the bed and do so to the dishes? <laughs> <laughs> He's just a great actor. What are you going to do? But, yeah. Um, yeah. 
All right, so let's. I, I have to prepare for this uh, jazz concert I'm going to. I, um, uh, I'm, I'm so glad. I just want to repeat myself, but I, I discovered during our last chat that something happens in a very good way for me when I lie on the bed and and rest my fa uh, head upon a big fluffy pillow. There's something about that that uh, makes me relaxed, and I can talk more freely more in a more relaxed way and i and i just uh, this is a, this is like an amazing discovery oh that's so. great well well listen just really quickly before you go yeah uh when do you leave again uh i'm gonna go down to uh, new jersey on thursday and leave my car at jet's place and i uh, leave on thursday that's this thursday coming up yeah just okay. uh, three four days from now wow okay um and i will be in paris for like four days and then down to Cannes. And uh, I just want to tell you, there's a, a, a place that uh, Jordan and uh, and, and uh, Aaron Salazar, a, a friend, and we're sharing this place. And it's there's plenty of room. And uh, I think we're, we must have one of the cheapest pads in the entire, during the entire festival. It's 1,500 euros, 500 each. And you really can't do much cheaper than that. It's, it's just amazing. And uh, I have a friend, I will not say her name, but she is a professional who is below the line, but she's, uh, you know, she does pretty well. And she and her husband are staying near the Grey d'Albion. Do you remember that hotel in Cannes? I uh, don't know that I do. It's kind of close to the, uh, to the Carlton and, you know, it's in that uh, rich area, the flush area. And she is paying just shy of a for days. Wow. How much? Just shy, just less, a little bit less than four k for oh my ten God. days. Wow. You know, that's, that's a what lot. you know. But uh, if you're looking to stay in the center of town at a place that you consider, you know, this is that's what they charge, and they and they get it. So you have to kind of yeah. Um, that's wild. So I'm very excited to hear your thoughts on the Scorsese movie. That's just the big one, right? Yeah, of course. Sure. And that's on the 20th, that screens. Yep. Yep. And they just recently uh, announced uh, the whole schedule. It's on the site. And uh, the interesting thing is that uh, Alice Rohrbacher, who's a very respected director, her film, interestingly, is uh, showing uh, on the last full day, which is Friday. And uh, I don't know what that means, but she's not part of the earlier part. Sometimes they have an interesting film that may that might you know change. Like, for instance, Parasite in 19 was shown towards the end of the festival. And that was very, had a, made a big impression upon the Inuritu-led jury. And as you know, it won the, the, the Palme d'Or, which, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't get it and I still don't get it. But there's a lot of people who find that film to be uh, quite the uh, quite the landmark of the, of the 21st century. And it's, uh, you know, I could, I could do a, an hour and a half talking about that stupid film. But OK, it's not stupid. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. No, I know. That's irritating. That's irritating. Yeah, well, we'll maybe we'll talk Parasite next time. A, a lot of these movies, they just get killed by the Oscars, and, and the Oscar race just ruins them for all time. 
just the, too much attention put on them, you know, and, uh, and, and they're not really meant to, 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 to like I, Killers of the Flower Moon, man, that thing's going to be like a, a chicken carcass dropped into a, you know, into a pit of coyotes. Like, <laughs> people are going to be picking over the bones of that movie for months, you know, because it's, it's, uh, they're going to hit it with everything and, and because there's just nothing else, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. so we'll see how it goes, but you're very lucky to be seeing it. I'm very envious and I'm sure the red carpet's going to be super fun. Uh, with those guys, it'll be a Telluride. Wouldn't you imagine? I think it's too big to go to Telluride. It is. I think so. Did yeah, I... I think it'll skip Telluride personally. Over no. And I think that the killer, J- David Fincher's the killer. I think it's going to go. I don't know because I haven't heard. I'm not speaking from any personal knowledge here, but I'm assuming, in keeping with the relationship with the New York Film Festival, like Social Network, it'll probably open there. I see. Okay. Don't you think? I wouldn't be surprised, and and yes, New York has to have two or three, uh, you know, notable premieres to be re- regarded as a, as a major festival. They can't yeah. just play uh, or tell you right and 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 can uh, retreads. They have to come up with something. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Okay. So that's what I think is going to happen, and and so we're looking at a year that might have mm-hmm. Fincher, Scorsese. Nolan, yeah, um, Alexander Payne, right? Like these are and, and you know Greta Gerwig. Should we talk about Barbie? No, I guess not. Um, so you know it's gonna be. It seems like it's already setting setting up to be a pretty great year, just with those directors alone. I think it's really a shame that uh, Nolan decided against showing his film uh, uh, Oppenheimer, not showing it in Cannes. It's coming out in July. Yeah, it's a good can movie. It should be a can movie, I think. Yeah, I do too. I don't know why they would do it that way, but uh because they're concerned about what's going to happen. They think it's going to be might be more of a negative than a positive. On some level, they believe that or they would have So they're mainly going for box office instead of critical acclaim. So if it were theoretically to show and can, and let's say that the vast majority, uh, let's say the acclaim was fairly considerable and people were pretty knocked out by it and saying it was great. You're saying that would hurt the box office? Well, because it could go either way, right? Yes, it could. Like you yeah. said, if it doesn't go well, then that kills the box office. And, and if they don't put it in can, it has a chance of still getting box office, even if it's bad. Well, you know, you know, it's not going to be bad. I mean, the only thing that's going to be negative about the Chris Nolan film, and God forbid that he does this, is that if he makes a sound mix where you can't understand anybody, which is what he's been doing for some time now, going back to Interstellar. I mean, he, if he just could get past that, where you can actually hear the dialogue, which you can't in, 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 in Interstellar. And it's very difficult to hear it in the most recent one. Uh, now I just blanked on the title. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's yeah. hard dialogue. So to his immense credit, you gotta really give him a stiff salute. Chris Nolan decided not to use presentism and cast, you know, three or four person people of color in the team that worked on the atomic bomb in New Mexico. And that would that's a very you know respectable thing, like Paul Thomas Anderson. He decided not to do that, and he made he made a film uh, 
in the San Fernando Valley uh, film that was basically about the way it really was. In the, and in the and uh, Banshees of Inisherin did the same thing. Um, yeah. And, and your your yeah. commenters would assume that that and then you they would all say, oh, they just like the good old white days, right? Uh, when things uh, were all great and white, and that's not it. It's it's about authentic storytelling. It's about being yeah. able to put yourself in a movie and feel like you're there. And exactly. when you when you see the strings and you see them trying to tinker to yeah. change it, and your your knowledge of history knows it's bullshit. Like Judith Baker in that show, you know, like then then you're totally taken out of the story, and now you're starting to think about, wait a second, what? The Wall Street Journal had a black female editor. <laughs> really? The Rupert Murdoch-owned uh, Wall Street Journal? Really? Please. So anyway, um, it's just not realistic. And why would you Why would you want to do that just to satisfy, you know? Just by the royal court because they want you to do that for the narrative that they want, which is that people of color are always brought into historical films any way, shape, or form. It can't be realistic in terms of the way it was primarily a white culture thing well, of at least... course and all that means is that you know you don't get to condemn rupert murdoch or you don't get to condemn the people at the wall street journal for being you know favoriting favoring white men yeah. it just erases yeah. that part of the whole history right so anyway all righty well you enjoy yourself and i will hopefully we can figure out a way to communicate while you're overseas i don't know how we'll be able to do it but we will just have to coordinate our time schedules it's easy yeah, yeah it, it's on skype so yeah we just have to figure out a time that we can both you know yeah well it's be very very simple very easy all righty well safe travels okay all right talk we'll to talk you later soon. right bye bye problem is all inside your head she said to me the answer is easy if you take it logically i'd like to help you in your struggle to be free there must be 50 ways to leave your lover she said it's really not my habit to intrude furthermore i hope my meaning won't be lost or misconstrued so i'll repeat myself at the risk of being crude, there must be 50 ways to leave your lover. 50 ways to leave your lover. Just slip out the bad chair. Make a new plan. Stand. You don't need to be coy or all. You just listen to me. Hey, you have all the butts, right? Don't need to discuss much. Drop off the key. Don't need to discuss much Drop off the key And get yourself free She said it grieves me so To see you in such pain I wish there was something I could do To make you smile again I said I appreciate that And would you please explain About the 50 ways Why don't we both just sleep on it tonight? And I believe in the morning you begin to see the light, and then she kissed me, and I realized she probably was right. There must be 50 ways.
Yeah, that's a bad jam.